Imagine a place where beds serve as the resting place not only for the living, but also for the dead. The archaeological site of Chatelhoyuk offers us an amazingly well-preserved glance at Neolithic existence. Yet beneath its plastered walls and earthen floors, riddles linger. Here, the very concept of family is blurred, and the line between life and death is uncertain. Just what were these ancient peoples hiding beneath their beds? So for today's episode, we are looking to Anatolia, or Asia Minor. More specifically, we are looking in the area of modern-day Turkey. Um, due to its location between Asia and Europe, Anatolia has long been an area of migration and trade. It's been very active throughout the centuries and the millennia. So today we are looking at the site of Çatalhöyük which is a Neolithic site located, as I previously said, within modern-day Turkey. It is approximately 26 acres, which is akin to around 33 football or soccer pitches for the Americans out there. Uh, the Neolithic settlement is located in the modern Konya plain of central Anatolia. Um, this site is located approximately 50 kilometers from the modern city of Konya and about an, which is about an hour's drive away if you're not great at visualizing distance like me I'm not I need football pitches and I need our I need drive lengths those are the only measurements I understand even the football pictures one is a little like Maybe it's because I'm not a sports girly, but I can't visualize a football field, let alone like 33 of them. But these are the measurements I have to give. I don't I don't know how else to measure that. There you go. So the site of Chatelhoyuk was active between 7100 BC and 5950 BC. So for a period of approximately a thousand years, give or take a bit. Um, during the time that it was active, there would have been approximately 8,000 people living in Chatelhoyuk. And we'll get into how they fit 8,000 people in this area um, in a moment and later in the podcast. So stick around. So just a brief rundown on the Neolithic. Neolithic means New Stone Age. And... Across the world, the Neolithic period is different for different areas. Um, if you're thinking about like Stonehenge as being Neolithic, it is, but it's British Neolithic, which is later than the Neolithic we're talking about. I believe British Neolithic, do not quote me on this, I believe British Neolithic is around approximately 4000 BC. I'm not great with each individual locations, Neolithic, Paleolithic, Mesolithic, Iron Age, whatever. I'm not great at which areas have which dates. It's kind of confusing because a lot of places, like when you're reading about them and learning about them, they'll be like, the Neolithic in Anatolia. And you're like, that is not helpful. Give me a date. I won't remember the date, but give me a date because Anatolia Neolithic is not the same as Neolithic around the world. Thank you. 
So within the Neolithic, we also have a concept known as the Neolithic Revolution. And this refers to, uh, I guess, the revolution of people moving from mobile hunter-gatherer societies into sedentary agricultural practices. Um, basically, that's people moving away from being mobile societies, um, gathering food and hunting animals and moving whenever resources dried up or seasonally and being in like smaller groups. Um, it's a move from that sort of lifestyle into being in a settled area into cultivating crops and animals, domesticating crops and animals. We're not entirely sure why people decided to do this, especially when you consider from the point of view of a society who has never had agriculture, that it seems like a lot of effort up front when you're in a time period where you can just go and gather your food, go and hunt your animal. It seems like a lot of effort to wait and cultivate crops. It's a lot of manpower up front for a payoff later on, which will presumably be greater than when you were hunting and gathering. But at the time, that might have been a hard concept to grasp. And it's difficult for people to, for archaeologists to understand why people decided to move into this form of living. So Chatlahoyak is important not only because it is well-preserved, which it is, but also because it's one of the oldest records we have of people settling down in an area of beginning this domestication process of crops and animals. It's one of the first indications we have of this Neolithic revolution. So the site of Chatlahoyak has been excavated on and off since the 1960s. Um, most notably, excavations began in 1961 and then ended in 1965 and then began again in 1995 and ended again in 2015. The UNESCO World Heritage Organization has also classified Chatlahoyak as a World Heritage Site and has given it World Heritage Protection. It has done so in the response to, and I quote, the site's extensive period of occupation, unusual architecture, and egalitarian social organization. Try saying egalitarian social organization 10 times fast, especially when you're dyslexic and trying to read aloud. <sighs> So most of the structures excavated at Chatlahoyak are thought to be inhabited dwellings, so homes, essentially. There have been over 200 of these homes excavated. However, they have only excavated less than 20% of the site. So these 200 homes are a very small representation of the site as a whole. However, they have done above ground surveys of the rest of the site. And it is believed that this um, majority habitual dwelling situation is replicated across the entirety of the site. It's not that they just hit homes in the, however much percentage of the site they've already excavated. They do believe that this habitual structure of the city is common 
throughout the entirety of the settlement. So the unusual architecture, quote, is related to these dwellings. Uh, they're laid out in a very unique, uh, we call it a honeycomb structure or layout, and all of the houses are sort of interconnected with one another. So there are groups of houses together in, I guess you would call them like neighborhoods. Um, and then between these neighborhoods, there'd be areas for animal penning, for waste depo de deposition, and then for outdoor activities as well. But these spaces wouldn't have been very large. Uh, it'd just be like a neighborhood, small area for animals and outdoor activities, and then another neighborhood. There's no evidence for public spaces or major religious or governmental spaces. So there's no evidence that there was any kind of overarching like hierarchy in regard to religion or government, anything that would cause the development of structures specifically for this one activity uh, outside of activities that take place in the home. So this is again suggestive of an egalitarian society and an egalitarian society is a society where everyone is seen as equal, where there is no religious hierarchy, no governmental hierarchy, no social hierarchy, uh, where the gender roles are seen as equal as well. Um, it is suggested that gender roles in Chatelahoyoc were seen as equal or the archeological evidence does not show a huge divide um, in gender roles that were taking place at the site. There is also very little evidence for any kinds of roadways or streets in Chatelahoyoc. So if you're picturing this in your head, you're probably like, hang on a minute, how does this work? The houses all interconnect, there's occasional outdoor spaces, and there's no streets. Well, I'll give you a hint. So the roofs of these buildings have holes in them, and on these holes there is evidence that there were once ladders. That's right, people. The Chatelahoyans, if that's what you want to call them, were into parkour. Now, it is suggested uh, and thought quite prominently thought that people in Chatelahoyuk were climbing up these ladders through the, I don't know if you call it a trapdoor when it's on a roof, to these doors on the roofs, climbing up outside onto the roof and then walking across these roofs to get to wherever they wanted to go, to their neighbor's house, to ask for a cup of sugar or whatever you do in the Neolithic period. But yes, it is thought that people were walking across the roofs in order to be in any way mobile um, amongst the settlement. And that's one of the reasons why I first got interested in Chatelahoya, because when they told us this in college, I was like, but what does that mean? Like, what kind of society are you living in where your main mode of transportation and the mode of transportation you have chosen to develop for your society is to walk up on a roof, walk across the roofs, and then walk back down, like throw a ladder into someone else's house. Like, I just think it says something about the social organization at the site 
you, you combine all of this information and it kind of almost seems like a utopian society. Do not quote me on that. For all I know, they were god-awful somewhere in some way. And clearly it didn't survive, so there was a problem somewhere. But still, fascinating to think about what it says about the society that they were walking across roofs as a mode of transportation that they intentionally developed. Like, I could not imagine someone walking across my roof. Be like, oh, sorry, Meg, it's John from across the road. I just got to get to so-and-so's house. You know, I have a nice day. Like, no, no, that's creepy. That would wake me up in the middle of the night. In modern society, it's creepy. I don't trust nobody. But clearly in the past, it possibly meant that these people trusted each other a lot more than we do. So these houses were all one story high. They had a central room in the middle of the house that housed the hearth and was sort of seems to be seen as the central room of activity. And then um, off of this main central room, there were a number of other smaller rooms which may seem like a lot of people today, but we've definitely seen higher numbers of people living in smaller spaces or similarly sized spaces. I mean, even up until the Victorian era, people were like cramming a lot of people into small spaces. So by modern standards, it seems like a lot of people, but it's not an unusually like high number of people that were living in these houses together. So these houses would have been restored or been worked on annually or biannually throughout their life cycles and the life cycle of each of these houses was thought to be between 40 and 90 years so between those 40 and 90 years either every year or every two years people would have worked on the houses replastered the walls relayed the floors just whatever maintenance work needed doing on the houses they would do it until a period where I suppose the house just was no longer viable and then they'd move on. Within the side rooms or sub rooms of these houses, there's also seen these raised platforms which had rounded edges and were thought or were seen to be topped with reed mats. Um, the houses also had benches which were built into the walls, uh, not some of them seem to have also had like animal tusks or animal horns like added to the benches like permanently like not just lying on them like they were a permanent feature of the bench where these animal horns and tusks and stuff like that so there's another aspect of the chatelahoyak houses which i find fascinating other than the parkour and that is that beneath all the houses that have been excavated at Chatelahoyek, they have also found the remains of approximately 700 people. There are approximately 700 people buried under or within the houses at Chatelahoyek. And there was up to 30 individuals excavated from a single home. So not just one body under a home, there were multiple burials within each of these houses. Which brings us on to the morbid portion of today's topic. Morbid archaeology portion of today. Finally, the dead people. 
So these burials were not often found close to the hearth, the center of the house, but were more commonly seen in the northern areas of the houses. They were also most notably seen under these raised platforms with the reed mats. And these platforms were thought to have been used as beds. So people think, archaeologists believe, that people were burying the dead under these raised platforms and then using these raised platforms as beds. They've also found burials beneath the foundations of the houses, also in the benches that I was discussing earlier. Uh, just essentially, it seems that they were finding them in most areas of the houses, except in the areas of the hearths. They were not commonly seen there. Um, there were, however, a few infants specifically that were found beneath the hearths or the ovens. This might suggest something about keeping them closer to the communal area of the house, keeping them closer to the activity. It may mean that they were trying to keep them alive in some sense, like included within the family structure or within the house structure, at least. Uh, we'll get into that later. Uh, but that might be why the infants were being buried in it beneath their hearts and the adults weren't. So it is suggested that these burial locations were reopened over time and new individuals were placed within them. Um, this could possibly have taken place when the house was being refurbished. If the floor was being worked on again, you could take it up, rebury a few more people in there and then cover it all up and work on the rest of the house. So there's very little evidence for secondary burial within these houses, meaning that it doesn't look like they were waiting for people to decompose and then bury them in the houses or waiting for them to skeletonize and then bury them in the houses. You can kind of tell this when you're looking at the graves um, because the skeletons all seem to be in articulation meaning that the bones are lining up as if the person had been placed in there when they were still like a full flesh body and then decaying down and then the, the skeletal structure like is laid out in the right order in the right way there's no like hand and feet bones aren't mixed up together like the vertebra aren't all over the place the ribs aren't all over the place they're laid out as they would have been laid in the grave so that's kind of how you can tell that they possibly weren't waiting for the people to skeletonize picking up their bones and then throwing their or placing their bones beneath the houses in a disarticulated um way However, there is proof that skulls were being taken out of these burials after the bodies had uh, decayed, which again shows us that they were reopening these graves after a period of time, and then they were taking out these skulls. What's interesting, however, is that the number of skulls that they've recovered from Chatelahoyuk is greater than the number of bodies missing skulls. So there are more heads than there are bodies missing heads, if that makes sense. This is making me think of Sleepy Hollow. I've never actually read that book, but I did see the TV show. It was a decent TV show. 
So this might suggest that not every single person that was dying in Chatelhoek or that died in Chatelhoek was being buried beneath the foundations of these houses. It's possible that they were being buried elsewhere or that something else was happening to their bodies and then their skulls were just being kept. Uh, like I said, they also haven't excavated the full site. So for all we know, that these bodies are just elsewhere. It's just the numbers aren't working out at the moment, but they do have a rather large, actually a fairly large sample size that they're working with, like 700. And the fact that they're not lining up is interesting. So I think some of these lone skulls that they're finding at Chatelahoyak have been encased in plaster. Now it's rare, but there are some of them that they're seeing in Chatelahoyak. There's one specific skull, which is very fascinating because it's plastered in clay. It's been painted red and its eyes have been sort of replaced with seashells or sort of remade using seashells. Um, there's only one case of this in Chatelahoyak. However, there have been, I think, around four other skulls similar to this with the plastering and the eyes, like a full remodel, essentially, that have been um, retrieved from across Anatolia. There have also been other generically plastered skulls um, found across Anatolia relating specifically to the Neolithic period. And... Um, They've been called the Neolithic Skull Cult. So if the Neolithic Skull Cultists want to tell me if they're taking membership, I'd be interested. There's also a burial excavated at Chatelhoyak of a woman that is cradling one of these plastered skulls. What's truly fascinating about this however is that the skull appears to be from a much earlier period than the individual so early that they don't think that the woman buried could have possibly known the individual the skull belongs to it is possible that it could have been an ancestor but it would have been a distant ancestor not someone she would have been like physically like have known in life but it may suggest some sort of deeper connection to the ancestors and um, perhaps not biological ancestors but the ancestors in general so the evidence suggests that the adults at the site were being buried or wrapped in cloth or wreaths uh, children were seen to have been buried in funeral baskets and neonates were found buried in wicker baskets specifically. And like I said, these much younger like neonate and infant individuals were also seen buried more commonly beneath the hearths and the ovens while the adults were not. So wall paintings, there are quite a lot of wall paintings at Chatelhoyak amongst the different houses. Most of them depict images of animals, specifically wild not domesticated animals and animals that would have been rather dangerous at the time definitely not the warm fuzzy kind of animals uh they're not painting bunny rabbits and uh little robins i don't even know if you get robins in turkey but yeah they're not painting the small fluffy ones they're painting the, the big beddies um but some of the paintings at the site 
depict what seemed to depict headless bodies um, and above these headless bodies are these giant birds the birds have also been seen with bodies in general with legs stuff like that and it's thought that these giant birds are a pictorial uh, depiction of vultures and that this could possibly be a depiction of a vulture defleshing the human remains so it's possible that they may have been leaving the dead out and the vultures may have been coming defleshing them and then they could have been taking the skulls for their skull collection and disposing of the rest of the body elsewhere um, forensic study of vulture defleshing has found that there is that this could be like a possibility however because it's been 9,000 years since these remains were buried, the surface level of the bones is not as well preserved as you would want to get a decent answer to this vulture defleshing theory. But it is a fascinating theory nonetheless, and it could help to explain why we're seeing skulls and not bodies that match up with these skulls. So over the years, people have done a lot of study on these skeletons excavated in Chatelhoyeth to try and gain a better understanding of the people who were living in Chatelhoyeth, uh, who were dying in Chatelhoyeth, and to gain a better understanding about the relationship between the living and the dead. I mean, it's like fascinating that you're finding these bodies buried within the houses so obviously people want to gain a better understanding of the relationship between the people living in the houses and the people buried beneath the houses so a lot of these studies have been focused on the like sort of social organization of Chatelhoyeth and what the dead might be able to tell us about this social organization so the assumption would of course be that the people buried beneath the houses were related to the people living in the houses and that the people buried beneath the houses would all therefore of course be related to each other in some way so a lot of the studies that people have done on the remains from Chatelhoyeth are in relation to this trying to figure out the relationship between the individuals buried within certain houses and within the neighborhoods as a whole so one such study looked at the dental metric and non-metric traits of uh, individuals buried within these houses. So what that essentially means for any non-osteas out there is that taking measurable and non-measurable features of the teeth and using this to try and better understand the genealogy of the site the idea being that people who are related would have the same uncommon dental traits to each other, and then people who aren't related wouldn't have the same dental uh, uncommon traits. So I'm not entirely familiar with dental metrics and non-metrics. I don't do them. I don't use them. Usually when I'm recording teeth, I'm only recording if they're there, if they're not there, if they've got buildup on them, if they've got whole like caries or abscesses or disease or stuff like that I'm not looking at the metrics and the non-metrics there's one feature of dentition I know is genetic which is the congenital absence of teeth 
meaning um, there are some people, myself included, who are born without adult teeth, and this is a genetic characteristic. However, in some populations, it's common. It's common within Irish and British populations. I get it from my mom, so does my brother. I am missing four of my molars and three of my premolars. My brother is missing one more tooth than I am and qualified for free braces because of it. We love the government in this country. I don't need braces, I'm fine. But still, I would have liked some free braces. Actually, maybe I wouldn't. This thing kind of seemed like a pain in the ass. I don't know. If you've had braces, tell me what you think of them. So the study found that individuals buried within the same houses didn't seem to be biologically related. It also found that individuals buried within the same neighborhoods also did not seem to be biologically related, which seems to put a dampener into the whole theory that people were burying their grandparents under their floors, that this was a family kinship sort of deal. So mitochondrial DNA from a number of subadults, that's juvenile, meaning a child or adolescent individuals from the site, has found that there is little to no biological relationship between individuals buried within the same houses as well. Results from stable isotope and nitrogen isotope testing have also shown evidence that individuals buried within the houses do not show signs of having had the same diet in childhood, again, suggesting that they may have grown up in different houses from each other and therefore were not eating the same meals, were not being raised on the same diets as each other. Don't ask me how mitochondrial DNA or stable isotope analysis works. If my knowledge on dental metrics and non-metrics is vague, my knowledge on mitochondrial DNA, stable isotope, and isogen isotope uh, study is non-existent. One of my friends did stable isotope and nitrogen isotope for her dissertation. It was interesting. I liked the graphs. I don't know what any of it means or how you do it. It's confusing but it's there and it's giving us some interesting results for Chatelohaya. So there are limitations to all of the studies that have been done, but they are giving us a fascinating insight into what could have been going on at Chatelohaya and into the kinship or like lack of kinship that's happening within these houses. So the archaeological evidence within the houses suggests that they were the center of domestic, industrial, and religious lifestyle. So pretty much everything was happening within the house. Again, like I said, there was no great religious centers within the settlement. People were practicing religion individually within their homes. It's possible that they were all practicing the same religion. They just weren't going to church every Sunday or, you know, going to a communal center of religion. This was a individual household experience. The same with industry. They seem to have been working in their homes, not working in a central location. So this might all suggest the, the non-biological relation and the home being the center of life, work, and religion could all suggest 
that these household structures in Chatelahoyuk were put together or brought together based not on biology, but on society, on culture, possibly religion or work, things like that. Essentially saying that the people in Chatelahoyuk were not living together because they were biologically related, but were living together because they were socially or culturally similar in some way. Either they were all doing the same work, type of work, they all believed in the same religion. We're not entirely sure, but it's just a theory based on the evidence we have so far that if the houses were not built on biology, that perhaps they were being built on some other foundation other than a biological connection between people. So it's been suggested that the funeral rites performed at Chatelahoyuk could have spanned across seasons, meaning that it could have taken seasons before these people were being buried beneath the houses, that the living were performing funeral rites upon the dead for a long period of time before they were burying them, which again suggests this deeper connection between the living and the dead. So by our modern Western standards, it may seem completely out there and foreign for people to be so connected to the dead, to be living with the dead. But it's really not that crazy. Um, there is specific people in Indonesia um, that tour... Oh God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to butcher this. I apologize. The Toraja people from Indonesia who perform a manene ritual. Uh, during this time, the dead are exhumed from their graves, cleaned, given new clothes, sometimes they even take pictures with them, and then they'll leave them out in the sun for them to dry out a little bit, and then they will rebury them. Oftentimes, the bodies of these individuals will remain in the home after the individual has died. Their body will remain in the home with their families until the families have saved up enough money so that they can hold the lavish funerals that are common amongst the people. And then during this time, it is believed that the soul of the person has not yet left their body and will not leave their body until the funeral has been held. So essentially the person is in some state of still being alive until this lavish funeral can be held for them. So this is a practice that like still takes place to this day. To these people, it is completely normal. It's part of their tradition. It's part of their lives. It's what they are ex expected to do and what is expected to happen to them once they died. So to Western society, what's happening in Chatelahoyuk might seem insane, but to other cultures, it might not. It might be seen as completely normal. It might be something that they still do to this day or that they used to do and is still within living memory or written record that used to occur. If you've ever checked out the Ask a Mortician YouTube channel or if you've ever listened to her podcast, Death in the Afternoon, you'll know that burial practices and funeral rites differ greatly across the world. They are completely unique to different countries, different cultures, religions, even people, individual people, 
can always choose to do whatever they want within the legal right for their country with their bodies. I mean, sometimes people even choose to do things which are not illegal within their country, that are not legal within their countries. It's why so many people are proponent for death rights and funeral laws and stuff like that. They wish for people to be able to do what they want with their bodies after they pass. A lot of rules in a lot of countries, a lot of laws in a lot of countries would make rituals like these illegal. But if they are traditional to you and to your people, is it right that it's against the law for you to practice your tradition, your culture, in a sense. So even here in Ireland, we have connections to the dead, which may not be seen as normal by some other Western societies. Specifically, I'm talking about an Irish wake. So this usually takes place the day before the funeral. And a wake will often take place in the home of the person who has died. Uh, It's it's kind of supposed to be like a celebration of their life, I guess. Like everyone comes together, talks, drinks, eats food, um, reminisces about the person who died. And all of this takes place with that person, the, the dead person, in the house. Sometimes they'll be in their coffin, in a, in a sitting room or in the, in the good room, the, the room set aside only for the priest to go and do when he visits. No one else is permitted in the good room. Or they could even be laid out on their bed. Um, And this is just a part of the Irish wake that the person will be in their home the night before their funeral. They will remain there overnight. A family member or multiple family members may stay in the home with them as well. And then the next morning, they are taken to the church for their funeral service and then to the graveyard to be buried. Oftentimes, the hearse carrying the coffin will drive slowly to the church and the people attending the funeral will walk behind the hearse with it to the church. I have been to multiple wakes where the individual was in the home. I've only been to one funeral where we walked the coffin to the church, but I've been to more wakes than I've been to funerals. So those funerals could have had the whole walking thing. I might just not have been there. So this tradition doesn't always take place anymore, but it is how funerals were traditionally held in Ireland, and it is what I want for my funeral. I wouldn't mind everyone having a little party around me while I'm just laying in my coffin at home. I'd be like, yeah, my life was crazy. Yeah, you tell that story. That's a great story. You remember that time? Good story. But yeah, burial practices funerals, connections to the dead. They're different all over the world. They're different throughout different time periods. Traditions and customs change and evolve or devolve or become illegal or become legal again. They're always, always changing, but they're always a fascinating way at gaining an insight into a society. Like, what does your connection to your dead tell us about the connection between the living as well? So that's Chatlahoyuk. That is the fascinating burials of Chatlahoyuk. 
you've got any comments or questions, you can leave them beneath the YouTube video at my Instagram at the Resurrection Woman. Or if you go to the podcast page for this podcast, you can also leave a voice memo there. Uh, thank you all so much for listening, and I'll see you in the next one.